Thank you for joining me today, Joe. So tell me, how did you end up in the position as editor of the journal? I had been on the editorial board for quite a long time. I can't remember what year I joined, but I did serve on the editorial board, and I served not incredibly frequently, but fairly often as a reader for papers. Mm -hmm. And uh, doing that, I developed a good relationship with uh, the associate editor, Gareth Williams, and also with the editors under whom I served, Barbara Gold, and also under David Larmore. Uh, I had been a longtime editorial board member, and you know I enjoyed the work. And uh, I had a good relationship with the people who were who were running the journal. So when David Larmer came to the end of his second term, he started looking for uh, a successor. And uh, I think what he wanted to do is, you know, without going to an open call, find somebody that he knew that he worked with whom he could recommend to the press. And he approached me, and I also talked to Gareth Williams about it, to get some idea of what the dimensions of the job were before I said that I would do it, but it sounded like it would be an interesting opportunity, so I said I would. And he did propose me to the press, and uh, that was that was accepted. So, you know, what's it mean to be in the top position of a journal that's so prestigious, and you had so much other involvement with how you know how do you feel stepping into this and, and kind of taking on this challenge well it is a challenge in a lot of ways because it's got a number of different dimensions and in all honesty you know one of the challenges that i faced was just the, the sheer mechanics of the job because it's it is an important responsibility to keep the journal running on an even keel and that kind of work, you know, does take a certain regularity and a certain amount of attention to uh, various kinds of detail that, you know, you have to, well, I at least have to focus on. It's not, it's not the sort of thing that I can kind of just do in my spare time. It does, uh, it does take a lot of work. And um, the reason for doing it, because, you know, honestly, a lot of the work that the editor does is kind of, I was going to say glorified proofreading, but it's not even glorified proofreading. It's, <laughs> you do a lot of proofreading, you, you know, you do a lot of checking for accuracy and consistency and stuff like that. What the editor doesn't do is chase down external readers. That's something that the associate editors do. And I had worked with Gareth, as I said, and I uh, also knew Victoria Wool and Michael Flower, the other associate editors, and I knew that they were very you know, solid, dependable, and helpful people. Otherwise, if I had had to do all that sort of thing by myself, I don't know if I could have done the job. It just, uh, it just would have been too much, but there's a very good team in place. So the reason for doing it, you know, in spite of the fact that a lot of the work is almost clerical in nature, is that, as you say, AJP is an important journal. And for me, it's not ego gratification to be somebody who's associated with a prestigious journal. Uh, the idea of prestige doesn't really mean very much to me per se. The point is that it's, it's a journal in which especially younger scholars want to publish because it's a kind of validation of their research. And I think it's important important that there be journals like that. AJP is obviously not the only one, and there are journals that specialize in areas that AJP uh, doesn't publish as much in, and they're important as well. But AJP has been there for a very long time doing this, and, you know, I, I published in AJP when I was young. I have served as an outside reader for a number of articles, and I, I see it as kind of giving back to the people who helped me establish my career, and I'm doing that for, for younger scholars.
what are some of your goals? You've talked about some of them in your introduction so far, but your goals, as you said, one of this position and kind of chart your path forward. Yeah. So really, quite honestly, and I said this to the editorial board when uh, I took over, I had for my first year as editor only one single goal in mind. And that was to maintain the smooth operation of the journal that it has enjoyed under David Larmer. It, I was impressed with the fact that is it you know it's a journal that is very well run. It's not just that there is this great team of associate editors who do most of the heavy lifting for the production of the journal from that point of view, but the Johns Hopkins University Press also has a very professional team that you know keeps track of every aspect of what's going on. And, and that is something that makes it easier as well. You know, it's not just a matter of the editor has to keep track of everything and make sure that things come in on time, though there's a certain amount of that, but there's a lot of back and forth with the press that helps with that. But still, it's challenging. There's a fair amount of material that's going back and forth at any given time, and my goal was to stay on top of that the first year and maintain the high standards that David Larmer had followed. That doesn't necessarily sound too inspiring because it's a fairly mechanical process, but it, it was important to me not to drop the ball on that. And, right. you know, so far, uh, with the help of the press, we have been uh, managing, and I think, you know, it's becoming a little more routine for me. So that was my specific goal for the first year. And my goal for beyond the first year were fairly ill-defined. I didn't have any particular changes I wanted to introduce or, uh, or what have you. However, the zeitgeist being what it was, uh, I did have a couple of concerns. And going into my first meeting with the um, editorial board, I had been I've been sensitized, let's say, to some of the issues that have played out in, especially the blogosphere, but not only there. Uh, having to do with the history of classics as a discipline, its um, reputation for exclusivity, uh, and things of that sort. And I had become aware of some people, even in the profession, who were using that reputation in the service of their own political uh, ideals and beliefs, if we can call them ideals, because mm -hmm. I, I, I am so out of agreement with them that I see them less as ideals than as problems in contemporary political life. And I'm talking about you know, very radical right-wing politics and flirting with the what's called the alt-right. And there are certain scholars in the history of classics who have been looked to as you know role models for a kind of classics that people allege we have gotten away from and uh, that we should go back to. And my concern is that uh, even when just the scientific aspect of this scholarship is singled out for commendation, that there is a kind of suggestion that some of the politics that these same figures espoused should also be brought back. So uh, what I became aware of this uh, through the figure of Tenny Frank, who is an uh, ancient historian uh, in the uh, early 20th century, who wrote a famous article infamous article, really, on the decline of the Roman Empire, in which he alleged that it was an influx of uh, freedmen from the Near East who became citizens and effectively debased the body politic by uh, gaining citizenship. And there's a, kind, there's a kind of irony in this, because Frank was an early proponent of a kind of demographic history uh, that 
can be practiced, um, you know, in a very responsible and is practiced in a very responsible and useful way. And in some ways, I'm not an ancient historian myself, but my reading of the material suggests that he was kind of important in introducing things like, you know, various techniques of of reading uh, large uh, amounts of data, large corpora of data, and trying to analyze them mathematically and statistically. He reached some very poor, incorrect conclusions, and his work has been corrected and even repudiated many times. But it turns out to have a kind of subterranean life among some alt-right people, including some people who have credentials as classicists. And I was concerned about this uh, I was concerned specifically because of the figure of Basil Gildersleeve, who is another figure, obviously the founder of AJP, founder of the Johns Hopkins Classics Department, and a very important figure in American classics for bringing the German seminar model of graduate education to the United States. He wrote some grammars and some commentaries that are still useful, uh, but he also was somebody who spent a certain amount of his time and used his credentials as a, a professor and as a classicist in the service of continuing to argue the cause of the South after the Civil War through Reconstruction and in the Jim Crow period. And he did so in a way that I think most contemporary people, some people from our own time, uh, would find objectionable and illegitimate because they were based on racist ideas. So I was concerned about that, but I didn't have a specific program for what we should do. I brought it up with the board in my first meeting, and that happened at the uh, 2019 SES meeting in San Diego the day before a number of incidents took place that have gotten a lot of press. I think people know about those. And all of a sudden, race became the topic of the day in classics. Uh, Specifically, I mean, one might say that AJP would still not have been as directly implicated in that as it is, but uh, we were called out in a session on the future of classics along with a couple of other journals for being a journal that overwhelmingly publishes the work of um, white authors and very, very few works by scholars of color. And that is true. If we look at the historical record to the best of our ability to discern the you know, racial affiliation of individual authors, there aren't a lot of people of color in the pages of AJP. So this has become something that has been a concern, partly because it was something I wanted to discuss with the editorial board, but then it became a very public issue that we felt we couldn't ignore. So right. that, that's, that's assumed an importance for us that is even greater than it might have if things had gone a little different way. You know, given all this, there's there's a lot going on, a new editor, these important issues coming up. How do you keep AJP very relevant and forward thinking at this great time? It's Yeah, that's a great question. And it's an ongoing process because on the one hand, things that we're doing have been affected by issues that have come up that, have, that are very urgent, I think, for the profession and for individual scholars. On the other hand, we're sort of sitting at the end of a very long process of becoming somebody who might publish not an article in AJP. So it's, it's difficult to learn how to write a scholarly article, right? It takes mm-hmm. some time and it takes, you know, sort of a progress through the various skills that one acquires in studying the ancient world. And this is true, I think, of every single academic discipline that exists. You know, you don't sort of get up one day and say, I'm going to write an academic article. It's a process that involves, you know, learning the discipline, learning the the necessary skills to do the kind of analysis that is involved. 
So, you know, we're in a situation where I think it is absolutely correct to challenge journals to try to do better. And at the same time, it's a reality that the journals are sort of at the end of the metaphor that we constantly use is the pipeline that traditionally begins very, very early in, in, in classics, you know, uh, going back to the days when Latin and Greek were compulsory subjects in some schools. It would go on, you know, begin in, say, middle school or high school and then eventuate in somebody at the end of graduate school beginning to publish articles. So the challenge is sort of how do we change at the end of the pipeline when we don't have too much control at the moment over uh, the beginning of the pipeline. And what we have done as an immediate sort of approach is to begin to invite people to address these issues in the pages of AJP. In guest editorials, we've had one by Patrice Rankin, and we're about to have uh, another one coming out later this year by uh, Mira So, and we have a few more lined up for next year that are going to be addressing different issues of, in the profession and publication. For example, Patrice Rankin made the point that you know, AJP doesn't publish very much about reception. The reception of classical studies in the contemporary world, which he says is a very big concern, and he's correct, is a very big concern to people of color, communities of color, and it involves an entirely different approach to scholarship from what AJP has tended to stand for in the past. He's right about that. Uh, Mir So is going to write, uh, uh, has written, is about to publish an article that has to do with what happens when you teach classics in an environment that involves people in color throughout the world. So, you know, approaches to the classics in countries other than uh, Europe and the Americas. Uh, we're going to have an article on precisely on the pipeline. Uh, we're going to have uh, an editorial that has to do with dealing with the whole issue of equity in the profession. So part of it is to bring the debate into the pages of AJP and also to invite uh, scholars of color to contribute to those uh, in that way. We uh, have been talking from that initial meeting, frankly, when we were discussing the whole legacy of Gildersleeve as the founder of AJP. We have been talking about a special issue uh, that we would publish as soon as possible, but, you know, it takes a while to arrange these things. And we have been actively working on that ever since. I'm not quite ready to announce the specifics, but um, I believe I will be able to do that by the end of this year. So I'm very excited about that, and I think we're going to have a very big intervention there. My hope is that the presence of these voices in the pages of AJP will be encouraging to members of the profession to submit papers to AJP that deal with related issues, that these will come from people of color who have not been so well represented in the journal, and that we will begin to change this not overnight, but going from zero to one and from one to two seems to me to be an essential first step before we can really achieve a kind of the kind of equity that we hope to see in the pages in the not too distant future. Just seems like such a important goal and like you say, every small step builds to a bigger step in the future for a journal that's been around for almost hundred fifty years. Yeah, exactly. That's that's exactly the way that I look at it. And, you know, the thing is that it's a controversial uh, situation. People have different opinions about this, but AJP has faced controversies in the past. The journal has 
responded to them and changed in productive ways. And I actually think it's good for people to challenge the institutions of the profession. And it's good for the institutions not to circle the wagons and be defensive, but to take the criticism seriously and try to respond in a productive way. And that is what we're trying to do. And I hope that it will be successful. I think so far so good, uh, but I'm, <laughs> I'm not at all willing to, uh, to, you know, say, yeah, we've done something and now everything's okay. Uh, we're at the beginning, I think, of a long process. Well, that's great. I'm, I'm really looking forward to see what the next steps are. And I appreciate you taking time to talk to us, Joe, today. Good luck in um, everything moving forward. Thanks so much, Brian. I enjoyed it.